Welcome back to Killer Fun, where we explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. I'm Christy, and today, today, Jackie is not with me. Oh, after all the excitement that we had recording last time, recording together for the first time since March when this pandemic started, and having set up our family, our bubble, where we trusted one another to be honest about where we'd been and what whom we'd had contact with and all of that, Jackie had to go out of town because a family member is ill and needed her help. Now, it's not the COVID, so that's good, but we're going to say a little prayer that Jackie doesn't come home with the COVID because uh, nobody needs that, but... I'm still here to bring you some interesting content. So I'm talking about the Testaments, the much awaited and desired sequel to The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. She wrote it in 1985 and fans have been clamoring for a sequel since. Everybody wants to know what happened to Alfred after she got in that panel van. Now, we've had a little bit of a conclusion on that front when it comes to the Hulu television show that has been made based on Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. So if you're familiar with that, which we have actually covered on this show, we covered the first episode ever, the premiere episode, we covered the first episode of season two We will be doing the first episode of season three at some point. And then when it finally comes out, the first episode of season four, we're going to make an effort to cover all of those things. But since Jackie's not with me and I had the Testaments, I got it for Christmas and I've read it and I read it with a pen and highlighter in hand. I thought today would be a great day to cover it so I can still bring you a nice new fresh episode and uh, Jackie's not missing out on anything. We miss her perspective, but you know, she can always give us that on the social media and you can find us on social media at Killer Fun Pod on Twitter. You can find us Killer Fun Podcast, exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment on Facebook, or you can send us an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. The Testaments, it gives us a conclusion of sorts. Offred, who we know to be named June from the Hulu serialized adaptation, is no longer the narrator or the protagonist. So it's less a sequel and more of a conclusion whatever you want to call this book. It's great. It's a really fast read. It's exciting in all the ways that you expect Margaret Atwood's books to be. It's thought provoking. It's incredibly well written. But before we get to the actual testaments, let's recap a little bit of what you need to know to be able to understand what's happening in the testaments that happened in The Handmaid's Tale. So Gilead is an ultra-fundamentalist pseudo-Christian theocracy that is comprised of a portion of the former United States. 
The Testaments confirms that neither Texas nor California are part of Gilead. And as I live in Texas and have family in California, I can't tell you how unreasonably happy and relieved I was to find out that neither California nor Texas were a part of the Republic of Gilead. So whatever else happens in this book, I'm relieved that my people are okay and I'm sad for the people of Gilead. Mostly. Uh, There's a strict caste system within Gilead, and it's reinforced with clothing styles and colors that are assigned to everyone. So you can tell at a glance where people belong. Wives wear teal, handmaids wear red, ants wear brown, commanders wear blue suits. It's all very, very strict in the color and the style of clothing that people wear so you can tell exactly where they belong at any given time. There's been a sharp decline in fertility rates and an increase in birth defects and few women are capable of bearing healthy children. Male infertility is completely ignored in this situation. Men of high stature are assigned a handmaid A woman who is likely to be fertile, she's in the fertile age of her life, but in the eyes of Gilead isn't fit to be a wife for whatever reason. These might be women who uh, had previously had an abortion, women who are divorced, women who are married to men who were later divorced. The Handmaid's Tale shares a story of oppression, state-sanctioned rape, and power-hungry men who go to terrible lengths to obtain and retain their power. These powerful men ignore those whom they see as less than, and we understand how strong human spirit has to be in order to survive and fight against this oppression. Not everybody has that fortitude. You know, that's okay. The people who do have the fortitude, it's their obligation to stand up. So the first novel's heroine is left in a very uncertain position why everyone was clamoring for the sequel. They wanted to know what happened to her. The Testament picks up 15 years after the end of The Handmaid's Tale, and it follows a portion of three women's lives, where they intersect and how they relate to Gilead. So the three stories are connected kind of after the fact. There's witness testimonies. We have testimony from witness 369A, who grew up as commander's daughter in Gilead. Her name is Agnes. We have witness 369B, who grew up in Canada, but has a very close connection to Gilead. And then there's the Arduahal holograph. Uh, it's written by a high-powered aunt, a woman who doesn't marry. That's who an aunt is. She doesn't marry, but she's in control of the female sphere of Gilead. She's confirmed to be Aunt Lydia pretty quickly in this book. Uh, she was the nemesis of Offred in both the original novel and June in the show. She's cruel and demanding, very, very challenging character. Some thoughts I had while reading this book. On page 99, 
Men were not supposed to display emotions in such ways as crying or even laughing out loud. And I was really struck by how even the oppressors were under such strict oversight that Gilead is really tolerable for so few people within its borders, within its confines, living under its iron thumb. They purport themselves to be freedom and the fact that everybody knows their place and theoretically everyone is cared for. But all you have to do is read the book or watch the show and know that not everyone's cared for, not everyone is valued. And that's a real problem. Even the people within Gilead really understood their situation. They understood that they weren't valued as they were told they were. On page 158, Agnes tells us, You must understand that I was not anybody in my own right. Although of the privileged class, I was just a young girl about to be confined to wedlock. Wedlock, it was a dull mechanic sound like an iron door clicking shut. She really saw herself as property. She saw that she had very little autonomy in her own right. And that, you know, that's not a great thing for under such authoritarian control to really understand. She understood that she was property. Just because the government had stripped her of autonomy didn't mean that she didn't recognize that she had been stripped of that, that it had been taken from her, and yet still realized that she herself was a person of value outside the confines of marriage and belonging to a man. Aunt Lydia writes to us in the Arduahal holographs. She tells us on page 172, This morning I got up an hour early to steal a few moments before breakfast. With you, my reader, you've become somewhat of an obsession, my sole confidant, my only friend. For whom can I tell the truth besides you? Who else can I trust? And I really was conflicted. Do I want to be friend of Aunt Lydia? Do I want to be her confidant? Do I want to be her safe place? She's a woman who's committed unspeakable atrocities just absolutely heinous behavior. Do I want to be her friend? Am I a bad person if I don't want to be her friend, if I'm unwilling to listen to her and bear witness to her story? I don't know. So in Aunt Lydia, Margaret Atwood gives us a character that reminded me of what Jackie and I really appreciated about Game of Thrones. She's bad. She's a villain, but she's not all bad. She's vital to the story and required for an ending that is any, in any way hopeful. It's, is it better to work within a corrupt system to change it or topple it from within? Or is it better to refuse to participate in a corrupt system, no matter what the cost? This was the choice that Aunt Lydia had to make. She could have died standing up to them, or she could acquiesce and work to topple them from within, to 
change the system so that it was more fair? It's a dilemma. And I don't know that any of us can honestly answer how we would behave in that dilemma until we're actually in it. It's just like you don't know what you're going to do in a situation you can say, I think if I'm my house is on fire and I'm running out, what do I grab? Do you grab your computer? Do you grab your photographs? Do you grab those letters? Do you grab nothing? Because you can't. Is getting out alive enough if you lose those things? Maybe the things are fine, but is getting out enough if you have to leave your pet behind? Is getting out enough if you have to leave your child or your spouse behind? That's really the gravity of the choice that Aunt Lydia had to make. It's an interesting dilemma to think about and a question that was raised for me as I was reading the Testaments. I also noticed that two of the three main characters used several names throughout the novel, but Margaret Atwood, she's such a great writer, and I never found it confusing. She was always very clear as to when they were changing their name, what they were changing it to, going back and forth between the names to make it really clear as to who the character was that was being spoken about, who was having, who was doing the action or speaking or participating in something. It was just really, really well done. And it's the mark of a great writer, which of course she is. She also did a really great job of making the tone of each of these three narrators distinct. The writing is excellent, consistently But the tone of each character is distinct. You almost don't need a descriptor at the beginning of each section to tell you whether it's 369A, 369B, or the Ardua Hall person to be able to know who's speaking. She's very clear, and they each have their own distinct voice. So this novel came out in uh, September of 2019. So it's been out almost a year, but right when it came out, NPR's Fresh Air, Maureen Corrigan, um, had a review and they made note that this novel is much more optimistic than The Handmaid's Tale. Maureen Corrigan says, how could the Testaments possibly convey the same degree of shock as its predecessor? And the answer is that it can't, which I think is fair. As somebody who was a longtime fan of The Handmaid's Tale, I'm okay with it not being quite as dark, especially, especially now when we're here in this time living through a pandemic, and it's a difficult situation. I'm okay reading a book that's a little less difficult than that one. This is astute. While The Handmaid's Tale might not be an exact reflection of, quote unquote, how we live now, it no longer feels as reassuringly improbable as it once did. Rather than taking readers on another descent into a nightmare, Atwood here foresees the possibility of hope, 
hope that the forces of resistance and sisterhood will eventually triumph over misogyny, power mongering, and the despoiling of the planet. And yes, I, I need a little hope. I need a little hope that powers like this are not going to take us over, that they're not going to diminish entire groups of people to the point where their existence is at the whim of somebody else. And of course, we all live that way sometimes. Every time you get on the highway, your survival is dependent upon people following the rules of the road and you paying attention. But to have your value questioned so fundamentally as it is in Gilead is troubling. And I'm really glad that Margaret Atwood didn't come out with this sequel really any sooner because now is when we need it. We needed the time to get through, to get to newer technology, to get to a point where maybe where the handmaid's tale felt more probable than it once did. But I think that Miss Atwood struggled with writing the sequel for a reason because we weren't ready for it yet. And we're ready for it now. And I'm glad it's here. So with that, I am going to do my normal sort of coverage. Uh, is it true? Psychology break? Real life? All that kind of stuff? Uh, after this quick break. Hi, I'm Steph. And I'm John. And we're the hosts of the Get Lit Podcast. Each week, we profile a different famous author, from their strange writing habits to their mysterious deaths. For example, did you know that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's wife died by accidentally setting herself on fire while sealing letters? Or that J.D. Salinger was an entertainment director on a cruise ship before writing Catcher in the Rye? So, if you want the backstories of the most iconic works of literature and the people who wrote them, check out the Get Lit Podcast. Available wherever you like to listen. And thank you, as always, for keeping it lit. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us through that quick break. Now it's time for Is It True? In the acknowledgments at the end of the Testaments, Margaret Atwood says the television series has respected one of the axioms of the novel. No event is allowed into it that does not have a precedent in human history. So while the novel is fiction, she based everything on real crimes against humanity. There was an article in The Atlantic by Sophie Gilbert, and it shares with us that Margaret Atwood actually collected boxes and boxes of news clippings of abuses of power, and that The Handmaid's Tale takes the old adage, it can't happen here, and flips it. It already has. It's just not exactly how we thought it would look. It looks a little different, but all of these things that happen, both in The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments, have really happened somewhere in the world. All these awful things, they're, they're real. And while that's disheartening, they didn't all happen together in one place. She's bringing worldwide atrocities and concentrating them down into a single horrible, horrible country. And that knowing that these things are true and have happened gives us the ability to recognize injustice more freely and to empower us 
to stop it when we see it. It gives us the ability to recognize it sooner. On page 154, Agnes is preparing to be married. And uh, her father is called Commander Kyle. And as they're talking about who her betrothed might be, he speaks up for her for the first time in a really long time. She's a little young, said Commander Kyle. I was grateful to him for the first time in a long while. Thirteen is not too young. It all depends. Ugh. Thirteen is definitely too young for a girl to get married. She's a girl. She's not a woman. If she, Even if she started puberty, even if she started menses, 13 is a child. We shouldn't marry children. It can't possibly happen in the U.S., can it? Can it? Oh, dear listener, I'm sorry to tell you. Yes, yes, it can. A lady named Frady Reese had an article in the Washington Post because she herself was basically forced to get married at 16 because she was pregnant. And she had hoped when they went to apply for the marriage license that that wedding would have been stopped, that they would have said she was too young at 16 to marry because she didn't want to marry this man, but she didn't feel like she had enough power to be able to say no to her family and his family. So in the United States, most states set the minimum marriage age at 18, but there are exceptions in every state that allow children younger than 18 to marry. And that's typically with the approval of a judge or a parent. So her nonprofit organization called Unchained at Last collected marriage license data. This is in 2017. This article came out from 2000 to 2010, which was the most information, most recent information that was available at the time. In looking at that information across 38 states, more than 167,000 children, most of them girls and most of them married to a man over the age of 18, were married. 167,000. Now, of course, some of that is consensual. It's teenagers who want to get married, either because they are pregnant or because they are in love and they want to get married, though I would argue that 16 is too young to get married. 18 is very young to get married, especially now. That's just 38 states that we know of because 12 states and the District of Columbia were unable to provide how many children were married between the year 2000 and 2010. So some state lawmakers don't want to limit the ability of people under the age of 18 to get married because they're worried, wrongly, that it might unlawfully stifle religious freedom because there are many people who believe that the best and really only solution to teenage pregnancy is 
marriage. I would say it's better to raise a child alone than with a terrible partner, with somebody you're ill-matched to. But this is really at strong odds with U.S. foreign policy because the State Department lists reducing child, early, and forced marriage as a key goal. To end that is something that our foreign policy leaders are very interested in doing because it basically enslaves primarily women. Additionally, the spousal age difference of many of these cases in the United States constitutes statutory rape under the state's law. So for example, in Idaho, someone 18 or older who has sex with a child under 16 can be charged with a felony and imprisoned for up to 25 years. And yet, the data from Idaho, which has the highest rate of child marriage in the United States, shows that 55 girls under the age of 16 were married to men who were 18 or older. And then there are states whose data includes a section for spouses who are 14 or younger. There may be no lower age limit. You see, you think 16 is too young to get pregnant. How about 12? It happens. They found... 12-year-olds in Alaska, Louisiana, and South Carolina who were all married, and they may not have been the youngest because the category simply stopped at 14 and under. I, I don't know about you. I have a kid who's almost 16. He's not ready to get married. I have a 12-year-old daughter. She is not ready to get married. Not even close. She's a child. Child marriage isn't confined to one particular uh, religion either. It usually has to do with religion. But in American culture, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and secular communities all have child marriages. So there's no one boogeyman here. But it does seem that we should really work to stop this. This is a, a challenging and saddening situation. And unfortunately, if they're in an abusive relationship, it's hard for an underage person to leave it. A child who leaves home is considered a runaway, even if she's married. If she leaves her house, they're likely to take her back to her parents who may have put her in that situation in the first place. And domestic violence shelters, they don't want to accept minors. They'll notify parents that children are there. And child protective services are not an option because it's not the job of a caseworker to deal with marriages that are considered legal under the law. Man, it's tough. So on page 171, Aunt Lydia is uh, having a uh, conversation with a man. And he says to her, you had an abortion, he said. So they'd been rifling through some of my records. You're aware that this form of person murder is now punishable by death. The law is retroactive. So this was after she'd been detained 
but was not yet an aunt. But that type of law that's retroactive has a term. It's called ex post facto law. And it retroactively changes the legal consequences of actions or relationships that were committed prior to the enactment of the law. So it might make something that was legal at the time now illegal. It might make the punishment for something that was illegal much more severe. And the U.S. actually uh, expressly forbids this, that the Constitution in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 3 expressly forbids ex post facto laws from requiring imprisonment of a person. It does not, however, do the opposite, which is a Latin term called in mitimus, which may alleviate the punishment of something that is no longer a crime. So if you went to jail for having a small amount of marijuana in your possession, a change in the law may be able to relieve you of further punishment of that because it's now no longer illegal. But something that was legal at the time that you did it cannot give you punishment after the fact because it was legal at the time. Later in that same chapter, Aunt Lydia is having a conversation with a commander, somebody who is of high power and whom she has a working relationship with. He says, our birth rate for various reasons, but most significantly through the selfish choices of women, is in free fall. So, of course, in The Handmaid's Tale, we are to understand that there has been quite a lot of war, quite a lot of an irresponsible allocation of resources that has caused a lot of environmental harm. And those things are completely ignored by the higher-ups in Gilead. They're just as if, as they are unwilling to acknowledge that male infertility is a thing. They're unwilling to acknowledge that any action that came about uh, because of man's actions, specifically man's actions, is the cause for a declining birth rate. We actually do have a declining birth rate in developed countries, but it's not as dire as it's portrayed in the book. It's very often because higher levels of education and later marriage allow women to make better reproductive choices for their lives. They're able to put off having a marriage and children because they're able to build a career, which is not something that they were able to do in the past. It's not something they were able to do in Gilead. Careers for women weren't a thing. You were assigned a job. Also, our maternal mortality has fallen and our infant mortality has fallen. We have better health care than what we've had in the past. So, of course, the birth rates and the fertility rates have gone down because women are having children later because it's safer to do so. And we can have fewer of them. So at the end of the novel, large section of the climax 
of the book takes place on the Nellie J. Banks. Now, obviously, it's not the same Nellie J. Banks as ran off the coast of Nova Scotia in the 1930s, but it's named for this particular ship, which is kind of interesting. It was a cod fishing schooner that turned into a quote-unquote rum runner. It was one of the final rum runners seized off the coast of Nova Scotia in 1938. And once it was seized, it was renamed the Leona G. McGuire. So it had been running illegal alcohol up and down the coast of Canada. And here we have a setting almost like another character Again, with a name change, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, man. Page 410. That's mad for a minute. So there's a symposium at the end of the novel where they're looking at these testimonies and studying them to try and understand what brought about the rise and fall of Gilead. It's similar to what was happening at the end of The Handmaid's Tale, where they're studying her account of what happened to her as a handmaid, which is what the handmaid's tale was. The whole book itself was an account. The presenter at the symposium says, could it be that one of Aunt Lydia's suspected enemies as detailed in the holograph itself, Aunt Elizabeth, her Aunt Fidalia, resentful of Lydia's power, craving her position, and familiar with both her handwriting and her verbal style, set out to compose this incriminating document, hoping to have it discovered by the eyes. And he likens this to the casket letters that were such a trouble for Mary, Queen of Scots. I was so mad. I was like, who is this bastard? Why is he lying to me? Then the presenter goes on to say, it's remotely possible, but on the whole, I'm inclined to view the holograph as authentic. And I was very relieved because even in this fictional account, I very much want the Ardua Hall holograph to be authentic. I'll post a link about the casket letters. It's a long and complicated story, but basically somebody was trying to frame Mary, Queen of Scots for ill behavior. All right, the psychology break. On page 176, Aunt Lydia's having a conversation with a commander. And she says to him, if it is to be a separate female sphere, it must be truly separate. Within it, women must command. Which I thought was brave and really a flash in the face of patriarchy, but within the sort of confines that she was able to assert some power this female sphere was largely ignored. And that's because, as uh, Miki Kashtan says on Psychology Today, that the patriarchy isn't really about men versus women. It's about power. She says that the underlying principle of patriarchy, as I understand it, is separation and control. The fundamental structures we have created over these millennia are based on dominance and submission, and the worldview we have inherited justifies them as necessary to overcome both our basic nature and quote-unquote nature seen as separate from us. We pride self-control and frown on emotionality. 
So women are often seen as more emotional creatures. Therefore, men are elevated in some way because they don't express them. So, but why patriarchy? If it's about power and not about manhood, why patriarchy? Why not some other word? And she says that it's because of the European historical lineage, which affected a lot of cultures around the world because of colonization. Paternity for a long time wasn't anything that was an issue. Only in the last few thousand years has paternity been important. And once paternity becomes important, controlling women becomes inevitable because only when you control women can you be certain of who the father is. Now, of course, that's a simplistic way of looking at it kind of assumes that women are liars and will lie to be able to protect their children, which is not untrue, but also not necessarily something that even most women would need to do. They would be honest about the parentage of their children. But really, patriarchy is bad for everybody, because in the end, patriarchy only gives a few men access to power. Most men have power only in relation to the power they have over women or minorities. So it's really, it's not, it's not a good setup for anybody, really. Victim blaming is common in Gilead, and it's common in Western culture at large. Poor Agnes saw the adult female body as one big booby trap, she says on page 83 It's so common, in fact, that it needs its own course of study. It needs to be studied in its own right. Not just that victim blaming happens and that it's a problem, but how it's perpetuated within our culture. So there's a study that was done in Frontiers of Psychology, and they had to study specifically We review the commonly studied individual factors that influence victim blaming, as well as common situational factors included or manipulated within sexual assault scenarios. So it's so common and consistent that it needs its own course of study. And then even the victims blame themselves. So poor Agnes, again, She's gone to the dentist, and this dentist is a molesting pedophile. He touches her inappropriately, and this is what she's internalized from this repressive society. So it was all true then about men and their rampaging, fiery urges, and merely by sitting in the dentist chair, I was the cause. Man, she blamed herself as a child, She was 12 at the time. It's ridiculous. But it's very, very common. Loyola University addresses it on their website. And they talk about many things. The typical responses, fear, losing control, flashbacks, trouble concentrating, depression, disrupted relationships, loss of an interest in sex, fear and anxiety. And one of the largest sections they have on their website, which is 
a resource for their students, not to say that they have any more of a problem than anywhere else, but that they're addressing it on their website because it's something common enough that it needs to be addressed, is guilty feelings. And they're the result of self-blame, that the victims tell themselves, I shouldn't have been out that late. I should have been dressed differently. If I'd been more careful about locking the door, this might not have happened. The fact is that whatever they did, whatever mistakes they made, they didn't deserve to be victimized. And that is something that Gilead and often Western culture in general doesn't give women the ability to do. So we really learn that Aunt Lydia was brutalized in the process of becoming an aunt. And as I was reading the book, I felt like she was in a concentration camp and then became a Nazi. That was the easiest, most clear sort of connection that I could make for myself while reading this. This phenomenon has a name. It's called internalized oppression. And it's a concept in which an oppressed group uses the methods of the oppressing group against itself. So Aunt Lydia, a woman, was being oppressed by the leaders, men of Gilead. And the ways she was oppressed, she then used to oppress people within her own group, other women. So this occurs primarily because some people within the oppressed group feel like they're worth more, which they are, they don't deserve the oppression. But then instead of fighting for freedom for all, they are desirous of being more like the oppressing group, because they're more valuable, they see them as more valuable. And then they might also internalize the ways which they've been marginalized as faults in themselves. So instead of seeing these women are being oppressed, we need to help them. The aunts frequently would see other women not as oppressed, but deserving of their oppression because of their behavior and their actions. It's a sad and confounding sort of situation. So real life in Gilead, uh, virginity is prized among women. And that's why they're married so young, because they're fearful that their high status daughters will become quote unquote damaged in some way and not allow them to have a good marriage match. And by good, I don't mean a healthy relationship. I mean that it's uh, politically advantageous for for the girl's family. We see a lot of this in Western culture, too. There was an article in Salon by Sarah J. Mosenlarner, who wrote a book called Virgin Nation, and uh, titled Evangelical's Obsession with Sexual Purity Has Nothing to Do with Sex. So they're not really ultimately about promoting a biblical view of sexuality. That's typically how it's presented. But today's movement really promises that if you conform to their view of sexuality, you'll enjoy spiritual, physical, and emotional satisfaction 
more frequently and more completely in your marriage relationship. Now that's been studied and that's not necessarily the case. These expectations are very often not met. It's not about the well-being for evangelical adolescents or anyone. It's more about the desire of many Christian leaders to present our country as a nation in distress and that Christianity can not only explain the crisis, but save us from it. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should have premarital sex. I'm not saying that waiting until you're married isn't right for you. But as a whole, marrying young because you want to have a sexual relationship with another adult is a a poor reason and tends to lead to poor matches, matches who aren't well suited for one another. So if we want to lower the divorce rate, then we should encourage people to not marry as young. And if that means uh, having a sexual relationship between adults before marriage, that might be the best course of action rather than waiting. Now, I'm, we don't have a judgment here. I don't. I know Jackie doesn't. About anybody who wants to wait because that's right for them. It's just t- telling a group at large that this is right because this is my interpretation of something is not necessarily what's really in the best interest of people. It's more about control. Oh, man. One thing that Agnes did in this book is she apologized frequently, very, very often. And this is an actual thing that happens. Women really do apologize more than men. Inc.com. Amy Marin has a article published in March of 2019 that studies show that women actually do apologize more than men. And it's not really that we feel like we've done anything wrong. I know I do this a ton. I apologize a lot, maybe when I shouldn't. It's not because we really do things wrong more often. It's because we have a lower threshold for what requires an apology. So both men and women apologized about 81% of the time when they thought their actions were in the wrong, when they were offensive in some way. But women reported committing more offenses. They're more likely also to feel like they were victims of wrongdoing. So it's not that women really do more wrong stuff than men or men do less wrong stuff or men do more wrong stuff and don't apologize for it. It's just a different way of thinking about what deserves an apology and what doesn't. The article suggests that being aware of this is important because you might want to consider how often and for what you're apologizing for. So saying, sorry, I didn't respond to your text message right away, or sorry, I didn't get back to you about that email might reinforce for others and yourself that you've done something wrong and lead to excessive guilt and shame. That's really unwarranted. You don't need to apologize for not getting back to somebody immediately, unless that was an actual transgression. It wasn't just that somebody sent you a message and you didn't get back to them right away. 
if there was a reason why they needed to get back to you, they needed you to get back to them right away. Maybe that warrants an apology, but maybe it doesn't. And that's the kind of way that language informs our behavior. So, and also men, maybe consider some of the things that you do and maybe they weren't an apology. Maybe there's something you need to say that you're sorry for more often than you do. So Gilead sent spies to Canada under the guise of being missionaries. They're pearl girls. They sent them under the guise of recruiting women to come to Gilead because they wanted their uteruses, basically. But they were actually engaged in espionage. Huh. Well, howdy who, that is a real thing. Matthew Avery Sutton had an article in September of 2019 in Time magazine about how how the U.S. recruited missionaries as spies in World War II, and we're only just now starting to learn about their involvement. There were dozens of them recruited to the U.S.'s first foreign intelligence agency, which was called the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. And the the missionaries really justified it to themselves because they were helping assassinate people who were doing the devil's handiwork. They were trying to bring about peace and charity to earth. And sometimes that meant dispatching or helping to dispatch people who were committing atrocities. The reason that American intelligence recruited the missionaries was because they make really good spies. They have really great language skills. They know how to uh, disappear into foreign cultures, really assimilate. That's something that they do in order to be able to reach the people that they're trying to reach. And they're really good at affecting change. They bring people into their religion frequently. And that's something that needed to be done. These missionaries, they really did not want their actions to be uh, brought to anyone's attention because if word got out, how could anybody ever trust them? But they really felt like what they were doing was for the good of not just their own religion, but the world. As a result, the U.S. government really guarded the secret that these missionaries and religious activists were spies and or sometimes assassins. And they've remained almost entirely hidden until just very recently. So in the 1940s, during World War II, when they were using these missionaries for this work, there weren't a lot of people who had the kind of skills that were needed. Missionaries did have them. But now we have the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and we don't need missionaries to do this work for us anymore. So we can be really grateful that those missionaries took the risk in order to try and help save the world. And also be really grateful that they don't have to do it anymore, that we have actual groups of people who study how to do this. And that we are no longer asking missionaries to carry bombs and poison pills along with their Bibles. So a way that they got information across the border was 
from Gilead to Canada and back again was through uh, micro dot cameras. And that was a real thing. It was a really important spy technology in the 1960s. And a micro dot camera is tiny and you can hide it and it can make the micro dots itself. Um, and they're less than a millimeter in diameter. They're so tiny that an entire document can be about the size of a punctuation mark in newspaper. So like printed punctuation mark at newspaper size can hold an entire document. That's a very effective way to do it. But it wasn't originally designed as spyware. It was developed as a parlor trick that then really became uh, vital in the 1960s to spies. So that was kind of interesting. And the final thing that I would like to talk about is that the symposium at the end of the book suggests that a lot of information was lost about the creation and time during Gilead because of a digital black hole. And this is a real thing that we should probably be concerned about, that our Increasing reliance on technology may mean that the 21st century will be a black hole in history. That when you update and change and then ultimately delete websites that contain our history, that that information could be really valuable at some point. And it's just lost forever when you change it and delete it. Lynn Brinley chief executive of the British Library brought this up in 2009, that this was important things that we were losing. And that additionally, not only are things changed, but when we get new software, and it becomes inaccessible, old files become inaccessible in the new software. And that can be an issue. It can cause us to lose data or lose accounts that might be valuable to historians in the future. So in 2015, Google Vice President Vint Cerf said that we needed to create what he called a digital vellum, which is like a way of preserving that information so that future generations would be able to interpret our emails and tweets and other things that we take for granted today, the things that they might see, but they wouldn't understand. Like Reply All has a segment that they do on their podcast sometimes called Yes, Yes, No. And sometimes somebody doesn't understand what a tweet means because there's many layers of it. And they kind of explain it to so that the other person can understand exactly what's happening in that particular tweet, because there's often three or four layers deep of information. And so Google is trying to uh, help maintain some of that so that we don't aren't perplexed in 50 or 100 years about what some of the stuff actually means. And in 2010, the U.S. Library of Congress made an agreement with Twitter to start archiving public tweets. That's valuable information. Being saved, trying to avoid the digital black hole. So next time, we're going to try and cover the 1997 sci-fi movie Gattaca. 
Ethan Hawke, Jude Law, Uma Thurman in a society that judges you almost entirely on your genetics. It's a fascinating, super interesting. And so we're going to try and cover that. So we thank you so much for listening to us. We know that you make a choice when you listen to us. We don't just come on the radio. And we thank you so, so much for listening. If you enjoyed us, tell a friend because it's way more fun when you can listen with a friend. Both of you listen to it, get together for a coffee date, whether that's socially distanced or on Zoom or on the phone or texting back and forth, whatever. It's way more fun to, t- to talk to somebody else about, you know, how silly I am and how I prattled on for an hour about this book and what I got right or what made you think I was wrong or what made you think or see something in a way that you hadn't thought of before. We would love for you to be able to engage in that kind of conversation with someone. And if you'd like to do it with us, that's also great. Find us on the social media. If you can rate and review, that's super helpful. It really does help us get found. If you can't give us five stars, though, send us an email. Tell us what it is that you would like to hear different about our show that could allow you to give us five stars because we want to make the best show that we possibly can. Until next time, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and wash your hands. And clams have been clamoring. Clams? I don't know if I said that right.